we're still in the season of Easter. Um, and as we've been going through Easter, that's right, you get a whole season of it, not just a single month. It's very exciting. Um, we've been exploring these bursts of new life that spring from Christ's empty tomb, and they break into our lives. And this, this empty tomb, this risen Christ gives us life, creates life within us. And the author of the letter or the epistle to the Hebrews has just this kind of idea in mind, this, this life within Christ. Um, it's probably a letter not many of us are super familiar with in the New Testament. Um, that's okay. I forgive you. You were absolved. Um, it's a very pastoral letter. Um, some scholars even think it might be a sermon manuscript sent off to a church um, with a little added addendum at the end. Um, and it addresses a community that is facing, again, persecution. Not just frustration and a lack of privilege, not just, you know, some hard days, but they are being faced with public scorn. In the 10th chapter, we hear that they've had property seized. Some of them have been imprisoned, and the rest of the church rises to the occasion and is taking care of them. And so chapter 10 encourages them, saying, you've done this before, and all through this, you've remained faithful to Jesus Christ in the face of this persecution. But now in the second round, some of the church had begun to drift away. Some of them had stopped meeting with the church altogether. They just returned to synagogue. And some had begun to wonder that if they just gave up Jesus altogether, if they just went back to being Jewish, then maybe they could avoid some of these difficulties, some of this suffering. So it's no surprise that this very Jewish community that's why we call it the letter to the Hebrews, it uses the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. It's kind of like reading it, and you're like, is he saying this? Is he quoting somebody? It just goes back and forth. It's just interwoven. And it spends a great deal of time using the Old Testament to show that Christ was foreshadowed in it, that Christ was expected or should have been expected, and that Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to the people of Israel. And so the author preaches Christ's superiority to the Old Covenant. That's what we celebrate every Sunday with the Eucharist, right? That Christ installs a new covenant, and that this covenant is better than the old one. That Christ is better than Moses, better than David, better than the Levitical system of sacrifice, that Christ's sacrifice supplants it and says this is no longer necessary. And Hebrews emphasizes a great deal that Christ is the only way into the very presence of the Father. This pastor is working very hard to call out to their congregation, saying there is something unique and profound about life in Christ. And we eventually get to chapter 11, which most of us, if we've ever heard of Hebrews, this is the chapter we know about, right? For faith is the assurance of things hoped for, blah, blah, blah. We know that one. But if we get past the first verse, the author starts just going through pretty much every major character or instance in the Old Testament, practically the entire corpus of the Hebrew Bible, and saying that this faith was all waiting in anticipation of the Christ's appearance, of Jesus' advent. 
And all of this happens, and then it culminates in our chapter this morning, in chapter 12. So I'd invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles or your cell phones, to not get on Facebook, but to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, where we will be looking at verses 1 through 13. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 13 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his children? It says, my sons and daughters, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a child. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at that time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, Pastor Jake unpacked something kind of difficult for us. Um, something difficult for us to understand. Last week, he talked about how this life that we're talking about in Christ doesn't just start on the other side of death. Christians aren't in a holding pattern until heaven. The life that Jesus extends to us as we remember that he said, I am the resurrection and the life. This Jesus is the one who gives us life here and now. But sometimes we wonder what does this new life look like? What is that even supposed to mean? What is its character, its shape, its form? And what exactly makes it resilient to death? To put it more practically, what does happen when this new life we experience butts up against death? What happens when our Easter seems to just circle right around to Good Friday? And what happens to this life in Christ when we are suffering? And brothers and sisters, we've been fed this narrative our entire lives by the culture that we live in. Um, Maybe you've heard the phrase, living the life, or living it up, or get a life, or something like that. 
Um, so for young people like myself, when James and I were visiting some friends in Chicago, we sat at a table next to a group of college students, and this girl so sadly and so seriously said, I don't know. I just promised that this year I was going to be living my best life, but I'm not. And I laughed at her because I'm mean. (laughs) But we attach this idea of life to something as banal and temporary and boring as money. We attach it to the idea of living in a mansion, going to some sweet parties, attracting attractive men and women, driving nice and shiny cars. And I'm sure some of you are probably thinking that I'm just overanalyzing idioms in a pastoral fashion. But I'm telling you a very dark truth about our culture and about every culture. These phrases that we pass around actually reveal something very true about the culture they come from. Otherwise, we wouldn't use them. If they don't attach to something that's true about what we think and how we view the world, we wouldn't say them. And you see idioms slowly pass out of style, like we don't really say go suck an egg anymore. That doesn't really connect to us. There's a cultural gap with that one. We instead like to say different things that I'm not going to say from the pulpit. Uh, Idioms change. When I was a teenager, the idea of something being lit or getting lit was not a good thing. It was attached to drugs. Like, oh, man, that person's lit. But now that's cool. Like, oh, man, that's lit. It's a thing. I don't know. I'm not cool. I'm sorry. Um, but these, yeah, Jeff. Jeff knows what's up. What is that? That's that's the symbol you make. Oh man, that's lit. That's tight. Uh, it used to be like fierce. This was a thing that my teenagers taught me in Boise. I, like I said, I'm not cool. Even when I was a teenager, I wasn't cool. Um, but these phrases that we come up with. And this culture that we live in, it it tells us this lie. That life, that living the life, living the high life, is just about consuming everything in our path so that we can bring about within us happiness. If we're sad, we eat comfort food. If you're unhappy in your marriage, try out a different one. If you're experiencing problems at work, Post about them on Facebook. Complain about your boss to all your friends until you can find a new job that pays you more money and gives you better benefits. Our culture has taught us over and over and over again that if we don't like something, and if something does not operate to bring us happiness, then it has no functional use. And so we push it out of our lives. If my car does not bring me happiness, I just need a better one. If my family does not bring me happiness then I don't need to bring happiness to them. We have been taught our whole lives pain avoidance instead of endurance, which is the focus of this chapter. And so our culture has taught us this grasping at life, and this grasping at life bleeds into everything that we do, and it bleeds into the way that we understand and envision this life that we receive in Jesus, this life that we receive in the Easter narrative. And we don't necessarily even do it on purpose, right? It's not like we're like, you know what, I'm going to mix up everything and come up with this concoction of our life. Because on a certain level, this idea 
is just the water that we swim in. Our culture is what is, surrounds us. We don't even necessarily aren't even aware of it. But because of this influence, we start to think things like, man, Jesus, why are you just going to sort this crap out? I'm dealing with it. Why aren't you dealing with it? When are you just going to mop it all up? I thought life was supposed to be easier by following you. And we start to think that maybe, just maybe, Jesus just isn't very effective at bringing about our happiness, about pushing against our struggles. So maybe we just need to change things up a bit. And this is the idea that the author of Hebrews is really firmly pushing against. See, there was this sense in this community, this growing sense to the recipients of this letter that maybe following Jesus wasn't worth it because it had been easier to be Jewish. Maybe it would be easier to go back to being Jewish because the Jews were protected under, Roman, under the Roman state, but Christians were kind of on the fringe. So it was okay to steal from Christians. It was okay to cheat them in business. So maybe if we just went back to being Jewish, it'd be fine. Like maybe it's the image that they think their faith is like a backpack. And they can just, like, slip one of the straps off and kind of just pretend they don't have a backpack on. And no one would notice that they were Christian. And I don't want to minimize that this is a people that was so beaten down by the realities of what they were facing that they thought maybe it would just be better to give up faith altogether. I'm sure none of us have ever had that happen in our lives. I have a feeling, though, that this story rings very familiar to many of us. We often feel beaten down. We hear of Easter as if from a distance. But we sit and wonder, when does that Easter actually break into my pain? See, the temptation for the recipients of Hebrews was to what's called apostasy, toward public denial or rejection of faith, like Peter Three times. But I think maybe ours is more often a temptation to just kind of let our faith slide to the sidelines. To let it fall off a little bit. Like unused athletic equipment that we got on a really good deal around New Year's. We just slowly push it away so that we can simply enjoy our lives. Or maybe we start doing that because we just feel so worn down by the realities that we face that we just aren't sure if we can press on any farther. And then Hebrews kind of breaks into that. And we hear Hebrews tell us, no, don't give up. Let's look at this from a different perspective. Perhaps it's discipline. And I'll be honest, I really don't like that word. I really struggle with it. I hear the word discipline, and I think of, like, my dad tanning my hide for me being a little brat. I think about corporal punishment. I hear discipline, and my brain hears punishment. Anyone else think that way? Just me? I see you. I see one hand. Um, And I struggle with that, because then if I put that onto God, I'm like, really? God's just giving me a cosmic spanking? That doesn't sound, like, right? Right? It sounds weird, right? If you think, think about it like that. And then when we start to think like that, though, we kind of start to say, like, ah, God's just, just, God just wants to punish me. God's just, like, all this stuff is just God punishing me. 
And God just doesn't want me to do fun stuff so that I can get into heaven and then I can do fun stuff. But Hebrews kind of like says, no, this isn't a cosmic game of delayed gratification. Like you can't have a cookie now, but you can have a cookie after dinner. This isn't have no life on earth so that you can have one in heaven. It's not that. Brothers and sisters, I have some really good news. That's not true. God is not out to smack our hands away from the cookie jar because you haven't had dinner yet. It's more like a grandpa, like, here, have some candy. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but my grandpa was always like, here, go sit in the front of the TV and eat a donut hole. I know we're eating in 30 minutes. Um, but this also isn't like a self-serving legalism. This isn't just pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and force ourselves through a difficult situation. Because Hebrews says very clearly at the beginning of our, of our passage today that it is Jesus who is the pioneer, the beginning, and the end, the perfecter of our faith. It is all within Christ that we have this faith, not by my sheer force of will. And Hebrews tells us again, it is the father of our spirits who enables a heartfelt obedience. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if this morning we could imagine a third alternative to blindly just consuming everything in our wake, indiscernibly, to fill every moment with amusement on one hand, and on the other just pushing our noses to the grindstones and forcing ourselves through it. Perhaps there's a third way between God beating us up and God just holding all the good stuff back until we die. And I think the book of Hebrews lands squarely as that third way. And Hebrews instead paints this very graphic and beautiful picture that is very different from either of these options. And the good news of the gospel is, in fact, a third way. We, must, we don't need to force our own atonement and pay God off. And we don't need to just say there is no hope and just live in whatever kind of lifestyle we want that just con- ends up consuming us. Instead, in Hebrews, the author describes this profound suffering as discipline. And he couches it all in this description of the suffering of the heroes of the faith and what they endured. In chapter 11, starting at verse 32, he says, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed their foreign enemies. We really like that part of it, right? They win. But then we hear women received back their dead, raised to life again. But there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. 
They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that's so easily entangled, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. See, these spiritual forebears, these our mothers and our fathers of faith, they saw suffering for what it is. Suffering is a break in God's plan for creation. Suffering and death were direct contradictions of the God that is life. Let's not forget that, that suffering, not inconvenience, but suffering is a contradiction of God's good plan. But these men and women, they saw God correctly as well. They saw that this God is able to bring about good things, even from within the very midst of our suffering. That the Spirit is just so reckless in love and seeking out our healing that he isn't impeded by our suffering. And so, knowing these two things, they practiced what Hebrews called endurance. Not in this dualistic sense that Pastor Jake corrected us on last week that their bodies don't really matter, so it's okay. But endurance in the face of trials because they knew in their hearts that God was not punishing them, but that God was using this suffering to perfect them. That God did not will and force this suffering upon them, but that God enters into their suffering and transforms it. See, Easter is the bold proclamation of the church of Christ that not even death ultimately wins. No amount of suffering will ever defeat this God who bursts from the grave. Not even death will remain when Christ's enemies are put beneath his feet because death is the final enemy. And so Hebrews enters into this story, enters into this lineage of faith and paints a picture for his congregation to understand their suffering. His congregation that was rocked by betrayal and heartache and fear. Again, nothing that we would understand. Or maybe we do. And he enters and he paints this picture for them of them running a race. Calling to mind the marathoners of the Olympic races. And he says, this great cloud of witnesses, which we might say, Hear the roar of the crowds around you, the ones who are bearing witness to the race that we are on together. Let their confession of faith in the face of persecution and their witness of your life cheer you on as you press through this by the power of Christ. Hear the voices of those such as Moses, Rahab, Daniel, Sarah, Abraham, Isaiah, and know that they are the ones sitting in the stadium as you near the finish line. The author doesn't say embrace this punishment. He says endure it as discipline. Not discipline in a punitive, pejorative, 
painful sense inflicted on you, but discipline just as a runner is disciplined by pushing over hills, just as an athlete has to get up out of bed when that bed is pretty comfy at 6 in the morning. Like an artist who draws the same things over and over and over again, despite their bore. Like a dancer that practices the same stretches and movements to teach their muscles how to bend and glide properly. This is the kind of discipline that Hebrews calls us to. The discipline that focuses our eyes on Christ instead of on the persecution and on the suffering. Because there are things that happen here, like injuries that take you out of the race for a little while, maybe, cause you to walk, get a breather. And those injuries are intended to completely remove us from the race, aren't they? But Hebrews reminds us that even in the midst of those things, our Redeemer is reaching in and bringing those injuries and changing them so that we become better runners in this race, so that we become better dancers, so that we become better artists, so that we become better parents and better people made in the image of God. The Spirit enters into that suffering and uses it to make us more like the Son, Christ Jesus. That is discipline. Enduring even when we don't feel like it. Even when it doesn't make us happy. The author of Hebrews says, just as you would submit to a trainer, a teacher, a parent, who you know is pushing you and doing their very best, just as you would submit to their instruction, submit even more so to the Father of our spirits, and that is how you receive life. Yes, now it is difficult, but keep your eyes fixed on Jesus who endured even the cross. This is our model, and not only our model that we strive for, but he is the very one who is training us and perfecting us. And this, Hebrews declares, is life. Submitting to that authority, submitting to Christ, submitting to the one who created life in the first place not shrinking back, not shirking away in fear of suffering. And so the passage today ends with the words that we heard from Isaiah the prophet earlier. And Hebrews reaches back through the sands of time and pulls the words of Isaiah the prophet, who is speaking to a people in exile, a people who understand suffering, and said, strengthen your feeble arms and steady your weak knees. The Lord is making a straight path for you. And Hebrews takes that and pairs it with the technical language of injury. As if saying, continue to participate in Christ so that your injuries and your pain and your suffering will not grow worse, but will be healed. So that the wounds that we have sustained will become as Christ's wounds, used to heal the world. Brothers and sisters, this morning, hear with me the roar of the crowd cheering us on and see that our front runner knows the course. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the covenant of, the, of Moses is not ever said to be bad. 
It's merely said to not quite be enough to gather us into the presence of God. But Hebrews says, in Christ, we are given access to the Father. And so that is why we practice every Sunday and participate every Sunday in the Eucharist. Because, like an athlete that never trains and decides to run a marathon, if we do not practice the changing of our very bodies, our very selves, to center around Christ's broken body and shed blood and resurrected and ascended self, we'll fall out of the race. So brothers and sisters, this is the table that Christ sets for us as the sustaining meal on our journey forward. And on the night that he was betrayed, He gathered with his 12 closest running companions, his closest friends, and he took bread and he gave thanks for it. And then he broke it, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Whenever you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, all covenants are sealed in blood in the ancient world. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood, a far better sacrifice than could ever be offered. Whenever you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me.